All right, as you grab a seat, uh, I want to I start our service by uh, doing something that Scripture commands us to do, but that I feel convicted that we don't do corporately enough, and that's spend some time praying for our nation and its leaders. Um, we're, we're making a commitment here, uh, our staff, to allow kind of the calendar to remind us of times when it makes sense to do that. And coming out of July 4th, this is a good time for us to just pause for a moment as a congregation and to pray for our country and those who lead it. So if you would join me in doing that. Uh, God, we thank you for America, Lord, for this place. Uh, we didn't do anything to choose to be born at this time or... Uh, to live here in this place at this time, God. That's your grace that's done that on our behalf, Lord. And uh, God, we want to thank you for the freedoms, the privileges, uh, the opportunities that we enjoy here in the United States of America. Lord, we recognize that there are people in countries all over the world who uh, would love to have some of the freedoms that we have here, and yet they do not. And so, uh, God, we don't want to take those for granted or take for granted those who have uh, achieved those for us, defended those on our behalf. Lord, we want to pray for those who lead our nation, uh, whether that's at the national level, Lord, at a state level, or even locally in our cities. Uh, God, I pray that you would give them wisdom. Lord, that you would give them discernment. God, Scripture tells us that government is instituted for the good of humanity, that it is a leader's responsibility to govern in such a way that humanity is able to flourish, Lord. And so I pray that for the leaders of this uh, nation, those who lead us at, at the governmental level uh, in all sort of stratospheres of our society, God, would you give them wisdom to govern in a way that allows humanity to flourish? Would you give them wisdom to govern in a way that is just and is fair, that uh, looks out for and protects us, but also provides avenues for us to be able to thrive, Lord. God, I pray that our country would continue to be a place where the gospel can thrive, that there would continue to be opportunities uh, and freedoms to share the truth of who Jesus Christ is here in this place. Lord, we pray that uh, your blessing would fall on our nation, Lord, not just for the sake of our prosperity, or whatever the case might be, but primarily we pray that the blessing that you bestow on the United States of America would be one of an increased church. God, that you would use us as citizens in America, but more importantly, as citizens of your kingdom, Lord, to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel here in this place. Lord, we know that we'll never live in a perfect nation or a perfect kingdom, Lord, until your final kingdom comes, Lord, and we look forward to that day. But until then, Lord, we pray for those who govern over us, and we pray as citizens of the United States of America that you would continue to use us for the spread of your kingdom, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Proverbs chapter 26. <clears throat> Whether that's digital or electronic. We're going to be in verses 17 down to 28. Are you ready? I want to encourage you this morning to listen carefully, or maybe 
drawing from what Jim Stites talked about last week, it's actually more important that we listen humbly than it is that we listen carefully. You see, we live in a word-saturated culture. 130 million books, unique book titles, have been published since the invention of the printing press in 1440. 2.2 million books were published in 2018 alone. There are 750,000 unique podcast channels that you could go and listen to. All things combined, that makes about 30 million podcast episodes. If you were to take all of the information on the internet and print it onto standard 8.5 by 11 sheets of paper, it would fill 100 billion sheets of paper at about 300 words per page. That's 30 trillion words, and it's doubling at a rate of approximately every 12 months. There are 2.38 billion users on Facebook, and that's not just how many profiles there are. There are 2.38 billion individuals who update their Facebook profile at least once a month. There are 1 billion Instagram users. There are 330 million users on Twitter. 1.3 billion people use YouTube every single day, and 300 hours of video content are loaded to YouTube every minute. We swim in a virtual sea of verbiage, and yet we have this complex relationship with words. We often only listen when it's advantageous to us. On a more personal note, the average female speaks 20,000 words a day. The average male, closer to 7,000. We intuitively understand that words are important. We know that they can change history. In fact, let's just take the history of this nation that we live in. Think about some of these statements that have shaped us as a people over the last 200-some years. On July 4th, 1776, these 14 words helped form our nation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. On November 19, 1863, Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address, which began with these 30 words. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. On our nation's 100th birthday, July 4th, 1876, Susan B. Anthony uttered these 31 words. We ask justice. We ask equality. We ask that all the political and civil rights that belong to citizens of the United States be guaranteed to us and our daughters forever. On December 8, 1941, Franklin D. Roosevelt directed the following 31 words toward the U.S. Congress. Yesterday, December, 4, or December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. John F. Kennedy, at his inaugural address in 1961, stated 17 words that most of us know by heart. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. On August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered 35 words in our nation's capital. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. In more recent times, on the evening of September 11, 2001, then-President George W. Bush said 42 words, the first he had spoken since that morning's terrorist attack. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundation of our buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. 
You don't have to say a lot in order to say something meaningful. And yet, despite the fact that we understand the importance of words, we, keep, we teach our kids 13 words that contradict the majority of what we know to be true about speech and the majority of what Scripture teaches. We tell our children, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And it's so misleading because reality is that the emotional and psychological wounds from words heal much more slowly than physical wounds. Do my words really matter or do they not? If what someone says to me makes no difference, then it has to logically follow that what I say to someone else makes no difference. Right? Or wrong? Which one is it, mom and dad? Do my words matter or do they not? I've said over 600 already, but maybe you missed half of them because you were a little bit late or, the intro- or this is just the introduction. And so honestly, what does it matter? You see, Scripture teaches us that the Lord speaks a better word and that as His people, we are to do the same. Look at Proverbs 26. Starting in verse 17 and down to the end of the chapter, there are 179 words about all the ways we misuse, abuse, and confuse with our words. Words that we often say mindlessly, but sometimes we say because we're obtuse. A person who is passing by and meddles in a quarrel that's not his is like one who grabs a dog by the ears. Like a madman who throws flaming darts and deadly arrows, so is the person who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Without wood, fire goes out. Without a gossip, conflict dies down. As charcoal for embers and wood for fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. A gossip's word are like choice food that goes down to one's innermost being. Smooth lips with an evil heart are like glaze on an earthen vessel. A hateful person disguises himself with his speech and harbors deceit within. When he speaks graciously, don't believe him, for there are seven detestable things in his heart. Though his hatred is concealed by deception, his evil will be revealed in the assembly. The one who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever rolls a stone, it will come back on him. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth causes ruin. Last week, Jim set up the reality that our listening issues are actually heart issues. The same is true for our wayward words. They're a symptom of a problem that is beyond skin deep, one that's more serious than making promises that we have no intention to keep. Jesus says in Luke 6.45 about the words of a good man that his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. Those are nine words about the origin of our words and the root of our word problems. And so, how do we misuse words? And what does it display about the truth of our heart? You see, Proverbs has more to say about the things that we say than it does about any other topic. There are 90 unique Proverbs about speech some of them dedicated to the ways that we misuse it, and some of it dedicated to how it is that we can speak wisely. Just looking at Proverbs 26, starting in verse 17, we see that sometimes we use contentious words. A person who is passing by and meddles in a quarrel that's not his is like one who grabs a dog by the ears. We know that you shouldn't look at a dog and grab it by the face. In fact, we teach our children not to do that because it's not smart. It might bite. And yet, when we speak in a contentious way, it's as if we're doing just that. James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says the following. Consider how small a fire sets ablaze a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is, a, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. We've all got this built-in flamethrower. And it might be more broken than just about any other part of our body. 
Or maybe you think to yourself, you know what? My mouth isn't really that bad, but instead of just throwing flames, what you do is you pour lighter fluid on someone else's fight. That's what Proverbs 26, 17 is about. We can be bent toward being contentious, quarrelsome, fighting just for the sake of fighting. We walk around lighting the world on fire. In the words of Michael Caine's character in The Dark Knight, some people just want to watch the world burn. And so we let the flamethrower fly or we spray the lighter fluid liberally. And what it says about our heart is that rather than being people of peace, sometimes we just like the thrill of a fight. It isn't our fight to have, but we're going to go in swinging nonetheless. As a side note and an illustration is the internet and the proliferation of social media sites have given us more opportunities to see more people quarrel. Oftentimes those places become the spaces whereby we engage in a fight that isn't ours to be had. We sit behind our keyboards and we pour lighter fluid on someone else's flamethrower. It's not your fight. You're just grabbing a dog by the ears, misusing our words for the thrill of the fight or the fun of the inferno. Proverbs 26 goes on in verses 18 and 19. It talks about deceptive words, like a madman throwing flaming darts and deadly arrows. So is the person who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Just so we're clear about what deception entails, because if there's an area of speech that we would want to wiggle our way out of, it's probably this one. Embellishment, exaggeration, half-truths, perjury, advantageous omissions, intentional misrepresentations, outright lying, all of those are deceptive. As verse 19 says, we can all resonate with having said something that we thought would be taken in good fun or that we thought would be funny only to see that it hurt the person we said it to and then tried to backtrack by saying, I was only joking. We weren't joking. Now we just don't want to be caught, so we offer a lie. Unless you're a compulsive liar, you don't lie for no reason. In fact, we lie because there's something to gain. Think about children. You've got a younger child and an older child. At one point, the younger child comes running to you crying. And when you ask what's wrong, they tell you that the older child pushed them. You go to the older child and you say, did you push your sibling? No. Come on. What's on the other side of that lie? Well, if I say yes, I'm probably going to get in trouble. But if I say no, maybe my parents will believe me. And by the way, I'd like a snack. Children deceive. Teenagers are deceptive. Your child comes home from school. They've got something they want to do that night. You ask the question, well, do you have homework? Because you need to do that first. No. Okay, well, we could quibble over what homework means. I don't have anything due tomorrow, but I definitely have a project that's due next week that I could be working on or some studying that I could do for the test that's in three days. But I want to go do that thing, so I'll advantageously omit that. I'll be deceptive. Adults, We're deceptive too. It's a Thursday morning. You've really got something that you would like to go and do. But you don't want to spend a personal day on it. Instead, you'll call in sick. That's right, you're not sick. And now you're hoping that your boss doesn't see you out at lunch. Or you're hoping that at the Royals game, you don't get caught on camera because then the jig will be up. We're deceptive. And we do it for personal gain. Children, teenagers, adults, all of us. We lie because there's something we want to get out of it. And if the prize is large enough, there's virtually no one we aren't willing to lie to. Look at verse 22. A gossip's words are like choice food that goes down to one's innermost being. 
We'll throw gossip and slander into the same category here. Gossip being revealing a secret that isn't yours to reveal. Slander being speaking something defaming about another person with an ill intent. How do you know you're doing one of those? Well, if you wouldn't be able to say something directly to an individual's face in a Christ-like and gracious way, so instead you say it behind their back, it's probably slanderous. If you have to start a sentence by saying, don't tell anyone that I told you, there's a chance that it's gossip. You're about to reveal something that wasn't yours to reveal. What does it say about our hearts? It says that maybe we're jealous of somebody else. And so rather than dealing with the jealousy in our own heart and coming to terms with who we are and not comparing with who they are, we offer something out of gossip in order to tear them down in the eyes of another person. Or maybe it reveals that there's anger in your heart. And rather than dealing with the anger or seeking to make amends, we do something out of revenge and we say something slanderous about another person. And that makes us feel better. Verse 23 talks about flattering words. Smooth lips with an evil heart are like glaze on an earthen vessel. Flattery is manipulation for the sake of personal advancement. Flattery isn't real compliment. They're loaded statements. We say what we think someone wants to hear because we know that they can give us what we want. It's brown nosing, buttering someone up. The American workplace is full of this. Say what you need to say to get the promotion or the boss off your back or whatever the case might be. Brown nosers. We don't love brown nosers, but we are brown nosers. We all do it, and oftentimes we don't realize that we're doing it. What lies at the heart of that is is a desire for self-advancement. We want to go forward, and so we butter up the person that we think can get us there. In the end... Look at Proverbs 26, verse 28. That flattery causes ruin, Proverbs says. Ruins the one who says it and the one that you buttered up. There are other places in the book of Proverbs that talk about our misuse of words. Jot down or flip to Proverbs 24, verse 24. Whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, people will curse him and nations will denounce him. Proverbs speaks against talking with perverse words. We talked about this a number of weeks ago when we looked at Proverbs chapter 2, but perverse words aren't just saying something off color. It's not just making a statement that maybe has an inappropriate sexual undertone to it. Perverse words are words that distort reality. They call that which is good bad and that which is bad good. They celebrate sin as though it isn't sin or they, celeb- or they denounce righteousness as though it were evil. We do this when we laugh at something that we know God hates or when we take pleasure in speaking something that we know is in bad taste. When I was in high school or middle school, we had an assembly where the police department came. And as an exercise in trying to teach you the dangers of driving under the influence of alcohol, they had these drunk goggles that you could put on. And then they made this little obstacle course on the floor that you had to try to go through with these glasses on. But you were just tripping over cones the whole time because reality had been distorted. You couldn't tell if you were walking straight or veering far off to the right. That's what perverse speech does. It distorts reality. And what it says about our hearts is that we're just broken. We're misguided. The same sin that has distorted the reality of the world around us and made good things look bad and bad things look good has taken root in our hearts and causes us to speak that way. 
Proverbs 27, verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Proverbs warns against braggadocious words. We don't need to do a ton of explaining on this one because we all understand what bragging or boasting sounds like. In a situation that's entirely unique to our current generation, there is a habit, a practice that exists in social media spaces where someone will receive a compliment and then repost the compliment for the world to see. What is that all about? Someone said something kind about you and you just so desperately wanted the whole world to know how wonderful that you were. You didn't trust that they'd see it from that person, so you sent it out there into the ether for everyone to be able to see. But now it comes from your mouth, not theirs. It's no longer a compliment, it's you bragging. Braggadocious words. And last but not least, Proverbs 18.21 talks about careless words. We're told that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Oftentimes, our heart is simply thoughtless, careless. We just don't think. And so rather than being intentional with our mouths in order to speak life, we use our tongue to speak death. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. We'll answer for each and every one of our thoughtless, unintentional, careless words. We'll have to give an answer for every contentious, deceptive, slanderous, flattering, perverse, braggadocious, careless word when we stand before the Father in heaven. I've said about 3,000 words up to this point. Are you still with me? Because if you can't find yourself in one of those seven categories, we need to go to last week. The problem is not that I'm not speaking clearly. The problem is that you're not listening humbly. The reality is that if we just took the last seven days of our lives, eliminated all the activity, took away all the behaviors, all of our thoughts even, and only took into account the things that have come forth from our mouths, we would stand before the Lord in a moment of judgment and be utterly guilty. It's more likely than not that each of us, myself included, is guilty in some way of all seven of those just within the last week. We need better words. Alexander Hamilton was one of American history's most prolific writers. There wasn't a problem or situation that he didn't think he could talk or write his way out of. Over the last few years, Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, musical, Hamilton, has been going across the nation. And in the middle of it, he has, or not in the middle, at the start of it, he has Alexander Hamilton introduce himself both to the audience and to Aaron Burr, his future political and personal rival, like this. Hamilton says, hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. He continues on, I'm going to get a scholarship to King's College. And I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I amaze and astonish. The problem is I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I got to holler just to be heard with every word I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough. 
a shining piece of coal, trying to reach my goal. My power of speech is unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get colder. I shoulder every burden, every disadvantage I have learned to manage. I don't have a gun to brandish. I walk these streets famished. My plan is to fan this spark into a flame. But it's getting kind of late, so let me spell out my name. I am the A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R. We are meant to be a colony that runs independently. Meanwhile, Britain keeps spitting on us endlessly. Essentially, they tax us relentlessly. The King Georgie turns around and runs a spending spree. He's never going to set his descendants free. So there will be a revolution in this century. Enter me, he says in parentheses. Don't be shocked when your history book mentions me. I will lay down my life if it sets us free. Eventually, you'll see my ascendancy. 221 really good words. (laughs) To which Aaron Burr replies, Geniuses, lower your voices. If you keep out of trouble, you double your choices. I'm on your side, but the situation is fraught. You've got to be carefully taught. If you talk, you'll end up shot. An unbelievable foreshadowing at the start of that musical because the man who thought he could write his way out of anything wrote his way into a duel that eventually got him killed. He thought his words could always be the thing that saved him, but they end up being the thing that undid him. We're likely not going to get shot for our contentious, deceptive, slanderous, flattering, perverse, braggadocious, careless words. But our prospect is even worse. Because those words will declare us guilty before the throne of God and eliminate any shot we have in eternity with Him. And so we need better words. If we're to be wise in the way that we use our words, what does that look like? Because there's a tension that exists in our culture. Those who speak quickest and loudest are often the ones who get noticed. But the truth is that those who speak thoughtfully and intentionally are the ones who get noted. Rather than misusing our words, we need to speak better words. And wisdom speaks the right words at the right time from the right person in the right way. Let me break that apart. Wisdom speaks the right words. And first and foremost, that means slowing down. You can't speak the right words in a willy-nilly sort of way because what most readily bubbles to the surface within us are words that are contentious and deceptive and slanderous, flattering, careless, perverse, or braggadocious. But instead, we're to speak words that are gentle, honest, gracious, sobering, intentional, straightforward, humble. James 1, 19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. The right words don't fly naturally out of our sin-stained hearts and off of our flame-throwing lips. We have to be slow to think hard. We have to be willing to listen to our own words in our own heart and in our own mind before ever uttering them to someone else. But we also have to say them at the right time. Proverbs 25.12 says that the right word spoken at the right time is like a gold apple in a silver setting. That a wise correction to a receptive ear is like a gold ring or an ornament of gold. It isn't enough to just say the right thing. We have to say the right thing at the right time. And when we do, it stands out like gold in a silver setting. We all understand intellectually that the middle of an argument about who's picking up the kids from where and at what time isn't the best moment to tell your spouse that they unloaded the dishwasher correctly. And yet sometimes in the heat of the moment, that's the time we pick to point out all of the flaws in the other person. Maybe they didn't unload the dishwasher correctly, but it was not the right time to point it out. When we slow down, we know that to be the case. 
You see, not only do we often use the wrong words, we use the wrong words at the wrong time. We like to fire up the flamethrower while we're standing next to a gas station. That shouldn't be the case for those who follow Jesus. But we also need to be the right person to offer the right words at the right time. Proverbs 26, 17, where we started. A person who is passing by in metals in a quarrel that is not his. Sometimes you're just not the right person to say anything, be it the right thing or the wrong thing. And so before you offer your thoughts or opinions, ask yourself, am I the right person to say this? Did anyone ask for my opinion? Before you fly to the keyboard and hit post, ask yourself, is this my battle to fight? Because if the answer to those questions is no, then you don't have anything to say. All of our outlets for speaking lead us to believe that if we have a thought, we have to share it. And that simply isn't true. You can have the right things to say and be the wrong person to say them. In such a situation, simply don't speak. We need to treasure that little thought in our heart and then move right along. Or write it down in our diary or type it up in a draft email and never hit send. You just don't say it. But even if you have the right words at the right time and you're the right person, you still have to say them in the right way. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. Now we're down to the root of the issue. And the root is always in the heart. The diagnostic question here is, why do I want to say this thing? Am I motivated by love? Or is there something else operating at my heart level? The thrill of a fight, the desire for personal gain, revenge, jealousy, personal advancement, brokenness, pride, because if the motive is bad, then the words simply aren't worth saying. At times, this means we need to wait to say something. Even if we're the right person with the right words at the right time, we may need to do some heart work in order to get into the right place before we say them. Love motivates us to use the right words. Love motivates us to have the patience to say them at the right time. Love motivates the examination of whether we're the right person or not, and love motivates the thoughtfulness necessary to use them the right way. Wisdom speaks the right words at the right time from the right person in the right way. But as we've been saying throughout this series in Proverbs, wisdom is more than knowing right from wrong. Wisdom is a relationship that you can have with the wise one, Jesus Christ, who also just so happens to be the best word that was ever spoken. High-quality words are precious to the Lord, and He has spoken the highest-quality word in His Son, Jesus Christ. I wrote a poem about it that I'll share with you now. Jesus, the best word, greater by far than any other we've seen or heard. He is never contentious for the sake of a fight, but gentle, even when our brokenness He brings to light. He's not deceptive for the sake of personal gain, but is honest, even with Herod, when on the brink of unthinkable pain. He does not slander or talk down about those who are his own, but is gracious and uplifting as he pleads for us before the throne. Jesus did not flatter or pander to those who held power, but spoke soberly and intentionally while refusing to cower. His words were never perverse, distorting the truth into a lie, but straightforward and perfect, magnifying his Father on high. He did not brag or boast in order to bring himself fame, but was humble and lowly, given the name that is above all names. He never spoke carelessly, but gave every word great thought, even the ones he uttered breathlessly as he died in our spot. And with his very last breath, he cried out, It is finished! 
with three words, shifted eternity for all who look to the Savior, unblemished. He spoke the right words at the right time to the right people in the right way, then went to the cross for every misused word I would ever say. Jesus, the best word, greater by far than any I've ever seen or heard. Our only hope of being wise with our mouths is for the best word to give us new hearts that overflow with better words. You see, what we need are not ten principles for speaking in a way that's more gracious. We don't need eleven methods for saying things that are more truthful. We need new hearts that overflow with new words. One commentator says it this way, On the cross, Jesus loved us so much that his sacrifice deleted the damning record before God of every foolish word you and I have ever spoken. He took the divine condemnation for our lies, insults, gossip, put-downs, bragging, false promises, and griping, as well as our guilty silence when we should have spoken up. With three words and a dying breath, Jesus did that on our behalf. The best word was crucified for all of our broken words. We got a new heart placed into our lives for every single person that places their faith in Him. New words now flow from that new heart and maybe no other facet of our life demonstrates for the world the veracity of our faith in Him than the way our tongue operates. James calls it a world of evil that no human can control, but Jesus can. And He does it not by merely teaching us to speak differently, but by putting within us a new heart that overflows with new words. Better words. And so as we take communion, we look to the best word. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Word who was with God. Who was God. If you're someone who's going to pass out our communion, if you would come grab these and start to distribute them in our congregation. As we take communion, I want to direct our thoughts to a few words that we might need to say in this space. As we take communion, you may need to say these two words. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, God, that Jesus Christ went to the cross for me. Thank you, Lord, that the best word allowed himself to be bloodied and bruised for all of my unnecessary words. You may need to say thank you to him for the very first time because you've not ever placed your faith in him and had your sin forgiven. You can do that this morning. You might need to say three words. I am sorry. And those three words might need to be directed towards someone in this room right now. Could be someone within your family. Might be someone within our church body. You may need to say, I am sorry to someone at work or someone in your neighborhood because you've spoken errant words that have hurt another person. In fact, I want to make an encouragement boldly here this morning. Scripture tells us that communion is something that we do in unity as a body of believers. And if there is a disunity that exists among us, that we're to take that so seriously that we would not enter into worship without seeking reconciliation, in which case you might need to set your two communion cups down and go seek reconciliation with a brother or sister in this congregation. I am sorry. Or maybe you simply need to cry out four words. And those four words would be, Lord, change my heart. 
Give me the heart of Jesus. Give me a heart that brings forth better words. Maybe as you're examining your own heart, you realize that your words often are contentious or they're spoken at the wrong time, that you've been slanderous and you can identify what the root issue of that is. In which case, I want to encourage you in the next couple of moments of silence, go before the Lord and ask for a new heart, a new heart that speaks better words. Regardless of where we might stand, we look to Jesus, the best word, and we seek wisdom with our words. In a word-saturated culture, about 5,500 of them in in this sermon, what we need are new hearts. He purchased those new hearts for us on the cross, and now He enables us to be word-saturated people. Word with a capital W. Take a few minutes before the Lord on your own before we take communion together. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. That's, that's something that we kind of sing and like we think about the worship service and Holy Spirit, you're welcome here because we're here and we're worshiping. But maybe what the Lord is trying to reveal is that we need to invite the Holy Spirit. You are welcome here. That the Holy Spirit would flood this place before you start flamethrowing out into the world. That the atmosphere would be filled not with words of death, but words of life. And the only way that we do that is that we slow down and actually give the Holy Spirit time to tell us, to speak to us about whether or not those words that are right on the tip of our tongue need to become words that actually cast themselves out into a word-saturated culture or words that we just swallow and say, you know what? Those aren't of Jesus. We should be people who are marked by a language that not only glorifies the Father, but a language that imitates the Son. That requires that the Holy Spirit be invited into our very acts of speech. We're going to sing one more song here about Christ being our living hope. We're just going to exalt in the Savior, but I pray that our speech as a congregation would be such that exalts the Savior. Amen? Amen.